And in the meantime, I will tell you that this is the weekly meeting of the Karma Club. The Karma Club is a, uh, shall we say, salon that I hold for people I consider intelligent who want to learn. You can learn about Karma Club and about me on Linktree. And you can also learn about the coin that supports the club, which is the Karma Coin. This is not an investment. <laughs> this is sort of a fan club thing. The coins are 23 cents. And if you buy one or two, um, you help us win rewards and we give the rewards to other artists. And in the meantime, we spend an hour a week talking about weighty topics. And I would say that this week we have a literal life or death agenda. And the reason for that is what we all know. And I'm, I'm not going to simplify it by saying everything would be different if we had female leadership. But I, I looked on the New York Times front page coverage of the Uvalde shooting today, and the, the uh, Times had done a survey of how many, how many of the Republicans would vote for any kind of gun control, and there were only four that were even open to it. And the rest of them weren't even open to it. So with the current leadership, basically white males, and, and I hate to say this because I have nothing against men, but the, the middle-aged white male leadership uh, that we have in this country now is not going to help us get to where we want to be. Because one of the things I think we are missing in this country is leadership that has some sensitivity. So with that, I'm going to introduce you to, to the rest of my moderators and hope that we can get a discussion going on what to do about this because this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm freaked out. I'm a mother. I'm a grandmother. And in truth, we are killing our own children. What culture does this? No other culture does it. I mean, we, our kids are not safe to go to school. We're, you know, well, you know, it, it's, it's done, right? It's, We've been reading about it in the newspaper. But what good does it do to read about it in the newspaper if there's nothing we can do after it happens? And so far, there really hasn't been anything we have done. So that makes me believe, among other things, that um, we need different leadership and that having more women in leadership might make a difference in what we got done. Now, that doesn't, again, that doesn't mean um, everything should be done legislatively, but we do need, we need something, and I'm going to stop talking because I'm frustrated. I'm beside myself. I've already written about this in my sub stack, um, which is, called Living the Dream, and it's francine.substack.com. So you can, um, you can look, you know, and read what I think. I think it's such a complicated issue that I want to, um, I want to get all our thoughts on it. Okay, so this is to my right. This is Heyman my trusty co-parent of this salon. <laughs> he is not only a guy, but he's a doctor guy. And so we are absolute um, 
opposites. So, and he is a guy of color. So this is a, this is a no holds barred, uh, let's discuss all the issues type of environment. To the right of Heyman, we have Barbara Annis, who is a gender expert. And if we hadn't had the Texas shooting, I think we'd be talking a lot about uh, women's intelligence and how it's different from men's intelligence. And I hope still will, because I, I want her to give us the benefit of her experience, which is decades long, on the differences between men and women and how they are a good thing. And we should maybe have a mix of both in leadership. And I'm hoping that we'll get Gouda in here. She promised me she would come and she's invited and somebody can ping her in because she wanted to contribute uh, stories of other countries that have already had female leaders and whether it makes a difference. And of course it makes a difference. Okay, and underneath her is Andreas Corso, who is the founder of the After We Vote Club. And the After We Vote Club is a cross-partisan, cross-racial uh, political platform that will tell people what we're going to do after we vote and also before we vote because we're coming up again on an election. So uh, maybe maybe Andrea can give us some solutions to this, this, I don't know what to call it, pickle that we find ourselves in. And Suzanne Nielsen, I love Suzanne Nielsen. And she's a very smart woman, too. See, nobody shows up in this room who isn't smart because it's not a fun room so much as it's a it's almost a work room or a contemplative room. So I'm hoping I can get all of them to. To uh, Barbara's in a noisy area. OK, I'm hoping I can get all of them to speak and also a lot of you. I, you know, I am sure you guys have a lot to say. Andrea. Whoa, okay, I'm up first. Um, I was just organizing my thoughts. Um, thank you for hosting this. And, you know, we've been talking uh, about uh, the importance of women's leadership and speculating about the difference it could make. Um, and, you know, looking at examples of, uh, you know, even through COVID, there was a cohort of women, uh, prime ministers and leaders that acted uh, very quickly to the crisis and imposed lockdowns and protocols in place to protect um, society in the immediate term while things were unfolding. And we were learning that what was going on from Jacinda Ahern to the former prime minister of Norway, Erna Solberg. Uh, and 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 others, uh, and then of course um, we have the example of what Jacinda Hearn did in New Zealand um, under her leadership after two consecutive attacks on Muslims, uh, gun massacres. Uh, she uh, mobilized the country, and she under her leadership mobilized political will to um, impose uh, stricter uh, gun gun control uh, and and gun laws. So. Uh, which is something we have not been able to do here in the United States for a number of reasons. So, um, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't think I'll jump into it all right now, Francine, but um, I do think that uh, we are at a pivotal moment of massive change that has been, you know, exacerbated by the curtain being drawn back after the impact of COVID and that many nations are in turmoil. But but we, uh, you know, keeping it here and focusing on um, the United States and this uh, th this crisis with the gun massacres is not just related to children, by the way. You know, there were the elderly black uh, people that were uh, victims in Buffalo uh, just recently. Um, and there are there are more 
So it is, uh, I would say it's a gun violence crisis that's just made, you know, the, the epitome of the worst aspects of it is that, you know, children are in, in schools where it's supposed to be a place of joy and freedom and learning and growth and happy memories and some, you know, playground trauma, but they are not safe in schools. So um, this is a multifold crisis. It's a health crisis. It's a culture crisis. It's a crisis of democracy that we're facing right now because we can't get anything done in Congress without a mass mobilization of just enough, I mean, numbers to somehow pressure those holding the filibuster back or 12 senator um, Republican senators, which is all we would need to maybe get more extensive background checks through. Uh, and I'm not sure that's going to be able to happen. So I'll pause there because I have so much uh, to think about this, but we certainly need in all of society, uh, like a multi-stakeholder approach uh, to this. And first, you know, I my PTR says no more thoughts and prayers. It says policy and action. But I will still send love and light and thoughts and prayers to the families uh, of those victims in Texas and everywhere else in New York. Well, here's what. Oh, good. Here's Guda. Um, I I want to say that I spent the morning in a room that uh, Norm Green was running called the Free Speech Room, and everybody was talking about, you know this and gun rights and and there's no way we're going to get gun control legislation through the legislature and that is because here half the country does not want it they know that guns are necessary for their safety i mean it's kind of it's kind of interesting or they think they think no 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 it's not they think they they it's not they think they know they live at the end of a you know half hour gravel road or that you know where or they live near the border or they live you know that gun they feel that guns are necessary and you have to honor that feeling. You can't, first of all, we have the Second Amendment. And second of all, you know, their, their feeling is, is in a sense right because they should have a right to have their gun. The, Possib and, go ahead. Possib possibly, but I do think that the emphasis now or the thinking is that we should be talking about gun safety rather than gun reform in the recognition of that and trying uh, in some schools of thought right now, the thinking is that we should try more um, practical inter incremental steps towards change that start focusing on protecting and saving lives. I think Francine, in addition to what you're saying, it's important that we be able to somehow also tackle and dismantle any mis and disinformation narratives um, well, which right. really couldn't be linked back to. <laughs> if I Trump, don't mind, I do you mind if I infuse something in here? Because I think, uh, I mean, having heard this like conversation sort of in for years, I'm wondering whether we should like. I was looking at the stats from the Pew Research Institute. I was just curious because of the fact that we were focusing on women initially, and so I looked up the stats, and they talked about male and female gun owners. One thing we don't talk about is how come all these um, mass shooters are all male. I mean, is there something that you can take away from <laughs> well, this and well, then basically right. yes. focus more on, right? Because I think it's, it's, it's yeah. men, it's I, younger, I can... younger men, and it's also in cities and not in rural areas where the greatest um, incidents of gun violence are in America. Well, yeah. right. Because and and just for the record, I, I, was, ahead, I was Dr. Francine Comod, the room with Norm, as you saw, and I was literally those minutes late because somebody went to the stage exactly to tell us that the room was completely wrong because there were three women who had done uh, mass shooting as well, right? And it's true. There were these three cases, but what the person didn't read about the cases is that the three women who were part of mass shootings, they are those that it's called in crime that the mastermind is the man and they dominate them, the women. And the women then are part of the crime with them or 
the women do the crime for them, commit the crime for them. Well, it's very interesting how defensive the, the gun rights people feel that they have to be because the, I have literally been called, first of all, let me clarify my own position for everybody in the audience who doesn't know me. Um, I am a person who went to a shooting range once, um, fired a gun and decided that it wasn't for me. Um, I also grew up mostly in cities, but I live in Arizona. And so even though um, I'm kind of a peacenik and guns are not my jam, um, I have seen everyone around me carry guns in the 50 years that I've lived in Arizona. And I don't remember very many mass shootings in Arizona. And it's, there's, there's got to be a reason, you know, you can't just condemn the guns because trust me, everybody in this state has a gun and, and our schools seem to be, now this could change tomorrow, but our schools so far seem to be safe. Now, I don't know if that's because we've had um, two or three women governors. Uh, I, I'm not sure. And you know? which state has the highest number of mass shooters? I just put up the stats for everyone who's interested. Which do you think? Texas? Uh, Is it Texas? No. New York. No. <laughs> no, no, no. California. Wow. 23. So that's since 1982 to May 2022. Florida is second at 12 and Texas is tied at 12. Washington State. Think of a Washington State. Has seven. And Colorado is seven as well. So those are, it's all listed on the, on the, uh, at the top. Okay, so I tried to introduce another theory, which was kind of rejected, um, but I think it was partly rejected because it had to do with science. Um, <laughs> people hate science, but I did a lot of reading after this. And one of the things that I already knew because I've been a foster parent is that the frontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, which is, I know Barbara knows all about this, but she told me she couldn't talk, but, but um, the prefrontal cortex in a human child does not finish, in a human brain, does not finish developing until age 25. Yeah, it is. I just want to add to that. So it is the male brain that the prefrontal cortex doesn't um, completely develop until age 18 to 24. But girls, it's around 12 to 14. So uh, the whole thing around risk taking and the amygdala going on fire, the fight and flight is very much a male brain. But also if the male brain has been under a lot of trauma and malnutrition in their childhood, the prefrontal cortex is damaged. And that's the, again, the consequence of thinking of the brain. So they, they don't think about, they don't have the thought processes to able to really think about their actions and the consequences of those actions. So I just wanted to add to that. Sorry for the noisy area. No, that was great. And I wanted to know that because after I did all that reading, I introduced in Norm's room the idea that maybe we ought to just raise the age at which men could buy guns or anyone could buy guns to 25. Yes. yes. Absolutely. If you follow the data in the science, that is a very feasible policy option. Whether it's politically feasible or not, that's a different question. Well, there's a hilarious number that were in Norm's room, a hilarious I'm not, that's rude. I shouldn't say that. There was a, quite a number of people coming off mic to reject that and respond to me. On what basis, Francine? On the fact that they can serve in the military at 18? Totally. And see, ser serving in the military at 18, I learned yesterday in Shireen's room, from someone who was a mil military wife, 
is done on purpose because what they like about these people is that their judgment won't overrule their emotions and their uh, and their stamina yes. and their ability to fight so the military trains men on the yes. other hand it trains them to fight on the other hand it also trains them to be responsible with a weapon you know so they take the francine they take advantage of the science of the prefrontal cortex that's why they're heavily heavily recruiting 18 year olds in russia and elsewhere because of that science and barbara what's the uh, like i'm just going to pull up an article right now uh, your exper- expertise would be valuable on this one what about um, violent domestic violence and kids who had troubled upbringings and the future presentation because there's an article that came out on Jezebel I'm just looking through and the evidence is backing it up with a lot of evidence so that's oh sorry wrong one um, it says that yet another mass shooting is preceded by domestic violence despite decades of long research America continues to ignore the connection between misogyny and mass shootings um, and I think this has been a common thread even in uh, uh, mass shootings in Canada so I'm not sure um, yeah, so yes, so Dr. Rachel Gurr, actually married to Dr. Ruben Gurr at the University of Pennsylvania, has actually studied male brains in jail, and they have found that um, they are damaged because of the trauma they've had in their lives. Now, it doesn't mean that the brain can't heal, it's just that we don't do that. We use a p- penalizing system that doesn't help these you know, these poor men that have that in their younger age have done some very stupid things or, or bad things, right? But it definitely has to do an impact on the brain in a, in a very big way. And trauma and malnutrition are the two kind of culprits, I would say, to that. So, yeah. Well, Dr. I am a foster Francine, parent. Yeah. Just to build on what Barbara's saying, that's also kind of another arrow pointing at some interventions that could be preventative, which is, uh, looking at flags for previous trauma and and um, tendencies to uh, you know repeat that kind of trauma or per, uh, per tendency to um, engage in violent uh, in violent crime, uh, which can also be racist. So you have to be very careful with it. But it, there is a pattern of trying to identify and limit access to gun uh, or or track uh, usage or ownership of a uh, somebody. Uh, of a gun that has that kind of either domestic violence uh, history uh, or other violent crime and mental health issues. But I just want to share that uh, in America, more than 50 um, American women are murdered with guns um, and uh, more than half of American women that were shot to death just in 2011, 53% of them were killed by intimate partners or family members. So women are uh, women and young uh young people, young men of color, are disproportionately impacted by gun violence. And in addition to what uh, someone was saying earlier, racism is a main driver behind this as well, uh, uh, especially now in the United States. Well, and before, (laughs) in fact, always. The other thing I I would like to add to that is that the fact that the amygdala is larger in men and boys, so that's the fight and flight part of the brain, uh, so when they are under a lot of stress, they tend to either completely retrieve or fight it out, right? And and again, then you've got the prefrontal cortex going. But women, amygdala is much smaller, and the prefrontal cortex calms the amygdala. So women become much more peacemakers. So when in conflict, for example, there's a 40-year 40, 40 study. I don't know if you can find it, Heyman. If not, I'll, I'll send right. it to that channel when I get a chance. Great. But there's a 40-year study on police, and when you have police... Uh, women in the front in conflict situation, they actually diffuse the situation, calm it down. And when men police officers in the front of these situations, they actually escalate it and fight it out. So there's a lot to be able to understand this gender intelligence. So we make decisions based on not only healthy brains, but also developing in a way and put women at the front of some of these things, which will actually reduce conflictual situations. So I just want to add that piece as well. Thank you. Well, that, that's where I, I want to get to eventually. But I, I want to tell you my own story first, because I was a foster parent. And yesterday was my foster son's 40th birthday. And he is in prison. 
and he is in prison because he had he had adverse childhood experiences before I got him. I got him when he was 10. And the first time he went to prison was because he was selling drugs. And I said to him, and he's not a criminal. He is a gentle soul. And yet he gets in these situations. The first time he wanted to be in a gang and he was the Mexican gangs in uh, Arizona are the big thing for poor white kids. And he, he was a poor white kid at, whose mother was a drug addict. And he basically joined uh, a Mexican gang. And so he, he was selling drugs because he wanted acceptance by the gang. And because he was my foster child, uh, I, and I had a fiduciary responsibility to the state, I, I narked on him and that got him sentenced to prison. And he served a sentence. Well, let me just say that the long and short of it is he and I have spent a long time trying to figure out what exactly happened because he came out of prison. He married a woman from Scottsdale. He had two lovely children. He stayed out of prison for 10 years. And then um, the woman decided to divorce him. And as soon as she divorced him, uh, he started hanging out with some stripper and then um, started selling this time. I think it was cocaine. I don't know what it was, but in, in, at any rate, he is now in prison again. And this time he's old enough that I can really talk to him. The first time I just cried. I was like, I can't understand it, Jerry. I love you so much. You know, I treat you like my own child. I've tried to give you everything. And that was because I didn't know attachment disorder. I didn't, you know, the foster care system at the time didn't give you any preparation. So I didn't know about attachment disorder. I didn't know about male amygdalas. I didn't know about adverse childhood experiences. And, you know, and I thought love conquered all. Actually, I still do, which is why this is the Karma Club. But it sure didn't work when I was bringing up those kids because of their adverse childhood experiences. And I realized now, what as I watch what is going on in everybody's life, um, I, I, I realized that Jerry was abandoned by his birth mother who became, who didn't meet his needs when he was a baby and didn't even feed him and spent all the money for food on drugs and then was abandoned again by me when I narked on him, you know, to the, to the foster care system and then was abandoned again by his wife when she decided to divorce him. Now, whether everyone had reasons for what they did is neither here nor there. This, I'm just saying how it, it, it affected him and why it is that, um, that he did that, you know, why he is now in prison. And so now I'm very alert to the science about adverse childhood experiences in male brains. And we just don't do enough to look at that. And I, you know, if we had women in positions of polit political power, maybe they would be willing to at least entertain this debate and not just call people like me gun grabbers. Dr. Francine, we need them there in big enough numbers and we need political donors, you know, if you as well. Um, and we also, in the short term, I think, need to be looking cross-sector. But I'll be quiet. I'm sure we want to hear from others on the stage. We have some great thinkers and speakers up here. I think she's probably dealing with her dogs. Heyman, did you want to, in, in, to drive us to the next person? Oh, yeah. sorry, Suzanne, Actually, Suzanne can't, yeah, I was dealing with my dog. Rick, uh, Samia, and Victoria, uh, you had your mics open. Did you want to chime in? Uh, not yet, just listening. Go ahead, Victoria. 
Yeah. So shout out to Barbara. Thank you so much for the invitation to the room. This has been a really interesting uh, conversation. So I do a lot of work around women development and putting them positions where they can be seen, where they can roar, where they can really um, own the skin that they're in and use their voice, um, whether that's from an advocacy standpoint or an opportunity for them to secure more money, whatever it is. And I feel like that the reason why there aren't enough women who are positioning themselves to lead in this capacity, whether that's being voted in, whether that's being supported in, whatever it is, is because, and and some might come for me for this, but is because other women are not positioning them to do so. And I find that there are a lot of barriers that we're creating for each other that is circumventing the opportunity for us to actually take the lead on issues like this and for us to flip the script. And I would be curious to hear what other folks think about this But as I continue to observe, do the research, watch what's happening, it's definitely not the numbers. Like, we've got the numbers to actually make a shift happen. I don't know if it's a lack of organization or what, but what I've seen in my own experience and in my own career development and in my own business development, yes, there have been women who have positioned me for success, but there have been far more men who have done that for me. And so curious to hear what folks think about this and would love if we could have a discussion about it. I love that. Um, I think, and thank you for this room, um, Dr. Francine, it's good to be in your room again. I feel like we haven't spoken in a long time. <laughs> I know. I don't run into you as much anymore. Good to see you. Yes, good to be here. But I think when it comes to women leadership, it's kind of a double-edged sword because I think... As, and I always say that, that like women uphold patriarchy in, in so many ways. Um, and with that, when it comes to leadership, in the spaces that I evolve in, in, in media and in fashion and beauty. Um, I'm sure you guys have seen a plethora of articles sort of like aggressively taking down the girl boss, right? And I know that this is a very specific stereotype, but at the end of the day, it's a woman leader. And I think when we talk about women in leadership and the brand of a woman leader, as a people, I don't think we've done a good job at um, emphasizing the positives because women are always more scrutinized than literally it's like fine comb. Like if we go to uh, Hillary's presidency, if we go to Judge Katanji Jackson, like I think there's always been this sort of double standard and the expectation of what a woman leader should be like and she should be liked and she should be nice and all these things. The list goes on. So I think, you know, my, my question to the room really is like, what can we do to change the brand of what a woman leader is? Because a woman is a leader. I think gender, we just unpack that there are really a lot of differences um, in gender and that women are equipped differently to lead. But I think in the same way that we say that, on the flip side, women are also attacked (laughs) and are put in situations where they would then be afraid to lead because they also do not want the scrutiny that is going to be thrown at them. So that's just sort of like an open-ended question and something that I've been thinking about because we know that there would be a difference if there were more women in leadership in so many spaces, but on the flip side, we kind of are mean to them. (laughs) And we do it to each other. Right. And that's my point. Like if you think about 
women who are culture shifters, who have stood out, who were brave enough to disrupt the space, it is majority of women that come for them, right? And so to your point about, you know, kind of curating a brand of what a female leader is and should be, I actually think that's doing us a disservice because there is no specific profile, right? Because we are so diverse and different, as long as we have the intellect, the gravitas, the ideation to actually, and the influence, right? To shift mindsets and behaviors. To me, that's the prerequisite and that's it. You don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to dress a certain way. You don't have to wear your makeup a certain way. You can't be too provocative. You can't be too beautiful. Like all of these things that we place on women, but women do it to each other the worst. And so when we think about why there aren't enough women leaders and to your points to me about women not even wanting to be in those roles because of the scrutiny that comes with it, how are we holding ourselves accountable to the narrative that we are forcing on our peers, our families about other women in our immediate circles? Like, I think that's where it starts and and that's the gap. This is a- Thanks, Victoria. We're, 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 I mean, research shows that that women not supporting women is shifting, which is fantastic. And I think a lot of it has to do with women that are more self-actualized, that actually look at the bigger we. But what I really want to focus on is really the key, which I think is needed more than ever, is authentic female leadership, right? Because authentic women leaders are the peacemakers. They are the collaborators. They look for the win-win. They diffuse toxic situations, right? Like we talked about with the police force, I don't know. Heyman, if you uh, shared that article that you found when I talked about the 40-year study about having more women at the front, in the front line in police. Sure, how that, Okay, beautiful. That it actually makes a, a huge difference. And Guda, I think you shared something at the back channel as well about Ireland and, and police. Do you want to add to that as well? No, oh, I, think- no, I, wrote, I wrote to you, yes, here in Ireland, Actually, they do have the police is always, they call the gardens. They are always in two. They never are in three. It's always a man and a woman. And it's exactly for those reasons. Yep. If there is an issue with another woman, with a child, and in, depending on the call, they already come sometimes only women. In Brazil also, in yep. Brazil, there is a police station that is only for women and children. Yeah. There's no it's men. Really, it's really important because uh, we see LAPD did a pilot study when they learned about gender intelligence. They said, well, let's experiment and let's go in, you know, to the tough areas in, in Los Angeles and put women in, in the front line of these family conflict situations or some some crazy guy with a gun or what you know what is going on and it actually impacted they were able to diffuse very 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 highly conflictual situations and we see it even women in police i mean in the military um you know they call themselves peacekeepers you know in canada we've seen this research as well around uh, being able to diffuse some of these warlike situations president Shalif johnson in liberia you know Liberia attributes women's movement, peace movement, having ended that war, the racial war that was going on there. So, yeah. So I really think that we need to create an awakening of the female advantage. So there is a a couple of books I want to recommend. One is by Helen Fisher. It's called The First Sex. I've written five books, but they're more in the business areas. And this, she's, she's talking about women's natural talent that can change the world. She's an anthropologist. That's one book, and I don't know if you can post that, Hyman. That would be great. And also The Female Advantage by Sally Helgeson and The Female Brain by Luanne Brinstendeen. We need to learn about these incredible hardwired differences. Sorry, I'll put put it there. Beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Francine. I'm done for now. Thank you. Francine, I've been watching you. um, First of all, happy Clubhouse birthday. And second, I've been watching you come on and off mic. So... Are you there? Christine? Oh, she gave up on us. I'm sorry. 
Um, Eo, what are your thoughts? You asked to come up? Uh, yeah, definitely. I grew up with a single mom, so I think women are badasses as far as I'm concerned. Um, and uh, with respect to conflict resolution, uh, I, I, I often reflect on the link that I posted in the group chat here. Uh, it's uh, We Are the Mighty. It's just a, a photo of a female special forces operator, and she's shaking the hands of children and speaking to the villagers and actually getting a lot more valuable intel than her male counterparts. So I think a lot can be said to uh, to the testament of soft power that women are often able to not only by their very nature be much more uh, caring, but also in their execution able to manage something that is a high risk or highly explosive situation. And I'm saddened in here in Canada, especially in the GTA, too often times we get something like a wellness check. Uh, yeah, we're going to do a wellness check. A bunch of male officers show up. There's a there's a usually some sort of Southeast Asian gentleman with a knife or something, and they oftentimes pretty much get executed for something that was supposed to be a mental health check or a wellness check. So we can definitely do much better there, and I think uh, we can learn a lot from uh, especially uh, not only uh, female leaders but also the uh, many women who are on the front lines. I, I'm, Thank you. I'm, okay, I'm giving uh, Christine. Are you still with me? No, nope. I'm yes. here. Yeah, I'm just listening, and I feel that um, being raised in a lot of in a violent community in America, um, I know coming from um, deep places of poverty that there's empathy that a woman can have, that a woman can feel through. Um, that creates this violence to even begin with. Because, you know, violence is just really stemmed from poverty in my eyes, not having the resources and the food and the things that they need to feel that they can live a good, abundant, loving life, right? But, you know, as I get older and as I raise my kids, I do notice that women, when we, we have the ability to slow everything down, to kind of collapse that whole scary place of not having enough, not 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 being able to provide and so if women were able to be in those spaces of you know being an officer or even just being there in the impoverished communities where they are violent because they don't feel that they have what they need it does soften the blow and i like i said i've experienced it you know women coming down to our neighborhoods and being able to change me maybe not the whole community but it changed me to be who I am today. So definitely, I think it's the empathy, it's the empathy, the ability to feel through the pain of poverty, to feel through the ancestral stuff, whatever is creating this violence to begin with, that can change the future for the children. And I just had kids, so I believe it's empathy that a woman has, that's her power to feel through what we've all experienced. Christine, that is the truth. I am um, I'm a mother and a grandmother and a foster mom. And this sounds overly simplistic, I'm sure. But the truth is that, that my mothering skills made me able to lead in my business. And I, I honestly think women have this innate ability that comes from mothering to extend that and if they're not forced to shut it down you know by i don't know victoria outside pressure other women you know business pressure you know you, you just in every situation i found the best way to act is to act as though i i were the mother Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in these situations, that is true. We see them as your children, and how we can uplift them if they're having a temper tantrum. You know, violence is a way. It's. I'm telling you, I know. I've been to Atlanta, and I've seen. I I, I looked a little boy in his eyes, and I said, "Why do you feel like you need <clears throat> all these guns?" 
you know, they don't feel safe. They don't feel love. They, their mother was who knows where. And I was able to, you know, reach out to him and hug him. His heart was just broken. Violence is an expression of like a temper tantrum of a child that just didn't get that hug, didn't get that love. Boy, Christine, that is so, so unbelievably true, you know, and and I don't think that our culture, I can't even imagine introducing that perspective into some of the rooms that I'm in on Clubhouse. But man, I wish we could. Suzanne, I see that you're ready to talk. I am. So I have so much to add, but so rather than me just go off on a for a long time. Um, give me a question that you want me to answer because God, I have, this is like, this topic is so hot to me right now. And I, honestly, I'm just absolutely devastated but what, by what happened at that elementary school. I mean, I'm, I don't, I don't, uh, ugh, I, I'm devastated. So give me a, give me something that will only last me a couple minutes to answer. <laughs> There's nothing because it's so complicated. What can we do? That would be my question. What can we do? So, I mean, so I too was in Norm's room for a little while um, when I was uh, getting covered and when I was in the air. Um, so it was spotty on and off. But um, so what can we do? That That's, you know, the $10 bazillion question. Um, uh, a lot of it comes from, you know, at home. You know, how can we teach our children what appropriate um, uh, reactions are rather than inappropriate reactions? And then honestly, Dr. Francine, one thing that you said was, you know, to increase the age, um, the minimum age that one can buy a, a weapon. And I'm I'm truly in favor of going 25 and above because my opinion is, well, you know, uh, kids grow from the time they're born until they're 18. My opinion is from a true maturity perspective, from 18 to 25, although they're not considered children because they're 18, they're young adults, but from 18 to 25, I think are the most formative formative years from true maturity perspective. Um, you know, my, my 20-year-old, is far different than my 22-year-old, and they are far different than 18-year-olds that I know, and none of them should be able to buy a gun, in my opinion. So that's, that's my two cents. Tessa, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> Hello, my dear. I'm happy to see you. I haven't been on Clubhouse in like a month, but I, uh, I know. It's a good day. Just, I was so happy. It was fate to see you holding such a beautiful space to digest and discuss uh, what a week we've had and imagine new leadership. Well, tell me what you would imagine because you've been so close to a number of these political situations in your advisory role. Yeah, so I guess I'm sorry, I'm just hopping in. So I'm sure there were um, profound things that have been said. But the two things that I would say is one, it's always, I mean, we know the statistics and how much of an outlier the United States is from other countries in terms of our rates of school shootings, mass shootings, gun possession, right? United, the United States has more guns than people, the only nation on earth that where that said is that stat is true. But what I would say is a lot of times people think like, oh, this can't happen or this won't be. Um, The first thing I would say is that it has happened and we have been through something similar to this before. Um, So I'm just going to do like, I'll do like 30 seconds of a little bit of history to give people kind of an outline of what I've been thinking about and talking about a lot. Um, And then kind of focused more around what, what we can do in terms of women being part of the process. So, you know, as folks might know, and I'm Tessa, sure. why don't you, you say what you, who you are, you know, and. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm Tessa. I, I, I totally forget. Yes. Um, this is, this is Tessa speaking. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So I work as a senior advisor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government, where I teach on social justice policy. And I also have an appointment and the leadership council with the Biden-Harris administration. Um, and, uh, but most excitingly, I've gotten to be a friend of Francine's for the past year in this app. 
So um, the first thing I will say is, so the assault weapon that was used in this school shooting and in Buffalo and in Sandy Hook and Columbine and so many of the AR-15, right? So from 1994 to 2004, so 10 years, pretty recently, there was a federal assault weapons ban that was established um, um, on the same day that it was passed by the House and the Senate in 1994. It was signed into law by President Clinton. So I think sometimes we're thinking, oh, we can't do anything or things can't change, can happen quickly. And I always say it's not a lack of power, it's a lack of care. Um, there is the authority by Congress and by our executive branch to sign an order like this into law within hours notice. But we know that we have some standstill from certain people. So I just always want to like preface that. It's not something that happened in the 1600s. This happened recently with presidents and Congress folks who are still alive. Um, that ban was um, dissolved in 2004 under the Bush administration. And it is the reason why I mention that is because it's specifically um, that the um, so it's the combination of that and then the the law that was put into place by Governor Abbott of Texas, which is called constitutional carry, which allows for anyone at the age of 18. It removes the necessity for a background check, removes the necessity for a permit or a license to buy a gun. As we know, um, the young man bought a gun on his 18th birthday, completely legal. He wasn't doing anything illegal in terms of the purchase. So first, it was the idea that um, that they are available federally, but then Texas also removed laws in terms of understanding who can purchase them. So sometimes we think about this like it's not political, it's just emotional, take politics out of it, but it's directly political. That if, the, if that those folks had not been into power, um, this shooting very literally would not have been able to come into place. So I think first and foremost for me always is thinking about um, who are the leaders? In every state, some already had primaries um, and territory in the United States. Primaries are this summer. Know who your candidates are. Are they pro-gun? Are they um, anti-gun? What kind of legislation? Because a lot of these things, you know, happen on the local, the county, the state level. Um, and in many counties, only 15% of the population of those eligible to vote, not even the whole population eligible to vote, vote in these local election and primaries. So I think it's on us. So the outrage and the emotion I know we're all having, let's fuel it into action because we always say our leaders are doing nothing. Our leaders are doing nothing. We choose the leaders. Our democracy is imperfect, but it's still a democracy. And it's not just who's in the White House or who's on the Supreme Court, even though I'm excited about our new justice. It's actually more the thing, what, what happened in Texas today had no, had very little relationship to the way in which our federal law is drawn. So I would just urge people to do that. And then secondly, we need more women, right? It's proven um, that that is the case. Today, we just finished up. We had the prime minister from New Zealand, Hassinda Ardern, who, and we've seen what happens when we have women leaders, whether they're on a school board or they're serving as a head of state, if they're leading a police force or they um, are leading a committee. We, we know that um, the ways in which laws and discussion and equality is often approached in a different manner. So I would uh, just encourage folks to um, support women, support, nominate woman candidates and um, others that identify as or support causes for women because I think that we see one of the most, and it's obviously, it's not obviously not that all women are this or all men are that, but um, that there's a clear indication that when we have more folks um, who identify as women, when we have more folks of different walks of life, then we tend to see policies that reflect um, um, more just policies, I would say. So there are a lot of organizations out there that are kind of doing this work. The last thing I'll say is one that I'm involved with in a board capacity is called Vote Run Lean. It equips and empowers and supports women who are running for office, whether they're running for judge or they're running for governor. So there are a lot of organizations and tons of them out there. I know you guys have probably talked about others and other other initiatives, but I think it's really powerful now to think about how can we fuel um, this feeling into action and make sure that our kids and grandkids uh, don't have to fight the same fight that our mothers and grandmothers did. And um, let, 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 let's not let these just be clubhouse rooms and posts and 
rants and dinner conversations, but uh, what are we going to do tomorrow in our own, whatever sphere that is, from the brunch room to the boardroom to the bedroom, wherever those conversations can be had with women and with others uh, to make sure we say, okay, so what's our plan? What's our community doing? Um, how are we voting and promoting change? Um, and then how can I think about uh, using the platform? Whatever I have, whether you know one person, if you know one person, if you're in this room, you know Francine, or now you do. So if you know one person, you have a platform. So I would say um, use your voice or whatever communication skill you're most comfortable in to be able to uh, think about how you can make a difference. This is Tessa and I'm complete. Oh, wow, Tessa, that was wonderful. I'd like to shout out to Kaisha in the audience because this morning she got on um, in an earlier room we were all in to talk about the fact that she didn't think that the action of the police was appropriate or fast enough and that she had read something about that and um and she she wanted to investigate whether it was true and i found out that indeed it was true the associated press has reported on it so shout out yes you really knew it. She was talking this morning about uh, gender equity in law enforcement and in in policing. So, yeah, that that was horrifying, and I didn't realize that. But you know, a lot of a lot of I don't know. You know, I give up. You all showed up. I love you for showing up. But I'm I'm practically too upset to even talk to you about it because it's it just is something that as 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 women as human beings as mothers and grandmothers and you know we just really need to be leading more the world needs us. Gouda had come in to tell us how many other countries had women leaders. And the original title for this room was How Come America Has Not Had a Woman President. Remember, Gouda? Exactly. And I find out so many things and very interesting, like the Empress of Byzantium, Theodora. She actually passed two laws in favor of women in those days. One was she implemented the rights of the woman in divorce, and the other one she stopped. It was forbidden uh, girls' marriage. And also, if you don't mind me throwing something in at the last minute here, I'm just wondering, like, whether these mass shootings are just a canary. Uh, Basically, if you think about it, we we talk about these people because, I mean, if you look at the stats, most of them are from lower socioeconomic uh, places, right, status, and that's the, the stats. And they, for them, I guess a gun is an equalizer or something to get power. But what about those individuals, mostly male, I'm presuming, uh, who actually are in the higher income brackets or a higher economic status? They achieve positions that give them control. And those positions have far greater ramifications for women and the world than anything. I think Barbara could actually chime in on this. I'm just wondering, like, even like if you think of the laws, if let's say misogyny, like that article that we posted earlier how misogyny has a a lot to do with some of these mass shootings. I'm just wondering, like, how does misogyny play when these more powerful people who have more powerful instruments than a a gun? uh... See, what I I believe, Heyman, and I I know you know I believe this, but I, I believe that all of these mass shootings are cries for help from young people who have not had anybody to love them and make them feel part of anything, be it a family or a community or a church or a school, you know, and they, and it's like, it's not mental illness. That's too easy to call it mental illness, but it is, uh, I'm going to coin a phrase for it. Let's call it social sickness. Because we have a terribly violent culture that we have made. Is it, but know, isn't we, like uh, those lawmakers who actually pass laws against women's health, 
No, Aren't it's they, not that. It won't be the no, same. Okay, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just passionate because I yeah, know yeah. these broken kids with the guns. I went to Atlanta and I looked them. Yes, baby, gun. I looked them in the eye and I asked. Okay, Opal. I asked them what was wrong. What's wrong is that their mothers didn't have enough money to right. feed them. They didn't have enough. They didn't feel like, like doctor said, they did not have the home upbringing. This is not about voting for anybody. It's about going straight to these communities and asking these kids, have you ever had a strawberry? Mm-hmm. Have you ever tasted fruit? But I'm also wondering, like, what about the legislators who actually pre- limited all it's those not access? About that. Obviously, they don't have the power. If, 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 if it was in the lawmakers' hands, yes, they can stop the young kids from buying it. Yes. Oh, but no, no, not that. More... I'm just saying, like, the mother part, the mother, the good homes, oh. the, the funding for, like, you know, better that's schools, it. better food, food deserts, uh, better, like, yes. You know, that, ro- yes. That's what I'm thinking. Like, these individuals, like, if we could bring, like, pull back a bit and not focus on the poor person who actually is screaming for help or who's actually uh, not getting the support they need or whatever that's causing the, the harm that's causing the news reports and go to right. the places that are, don't get the, uh, the light on them, right? All these legislators and business leaders who actually have so much power to change the world. And I'm wondering, like, how much negative effect are they having that the same effect that these gun pe- uh, mass shooters have on a smaller well, population? Political inaction is not really serving the general population at the moment. Uh, this is an interesting. Uh, I, I heard. I just want to, um, can I just chime in real quick? Yeah, go ahead. Sure. Yeah, thank you so much. And I have to hop off in a second, but um, the first thing We're I wanted all to say. Off in a second. Okay, good, good, good. I'll then I'll be super quick. The first thing I wanted to say is I think um, I think we get into dangerous territory when we assign or associate mental um, health and mental illness directly with um, the murders and mass shootings. I also think it's dangerous and ahistorical and accurate to assign those of low-income communities or folks of color directly um with mass shootings. It's not true, and the data doesn't show the trend between those of lesser means, those are of color, um, that are more likely, right? The majority of mass shooters actually come from an upper middle class background. So I wanted to just dispel this idea that it's um, that folks coming from those communities. The second thing I wanted to, I think someone might be off mic. The second thing I wanted to make sure that it's critically clear is so much of this, and I know we all grew up in a generation where there was no internet and well that, and especially our parents and grandparents' generation, as Dr. Francine was mentioning, it's no longer such that um, if you didn't have a strawberry or that you weren't hugged, that now that has a direct relation. I think there are so many, there are, our cultures and communities are much more expanded than the two three, four, five people that are in our household. So I don't think that we can make that exact okay. one-to-one well, that, binding well, association. Okay, I can I finish, love? I, I, I would love to finish. I, I will never interrupt you. And I just want to, we can have different opinions, but I just, I w- would love to conclude my point as I allowed you to do so for yours. So I just think that because this is what I do, I work in social justice and criminal justice, and I look at this data all day long. And it's sometimes it because, and, and I, it's not blaming anyone because Sometimes the news outlets, they want us to believe that, right? And and oftentimes I'm shocked myself. Some of the things I read today, I was like, I had no idea that this was the case because I've been led to believe that something else was the case. So I, my grandma always said, when you know more, share more. And when you know more, do more. And so I think it's important for us to understand to even within ourselves that everyone here is so powerful and wanting changes on the complete opposite side than theirs. But I think we also have to question it. I always say every day, I want to make sure that I question myself too and help to correct and unlearn. So I just wanted to point out those things that um, there actually isn't that association that we might think there is there and that a lot of this um, is not, it does not have that relationship. And I think once we do that, we can understand that so much of this is a political thing and it is about access. We look internationally around those that have access to weapons of mass destruction. We look internationally around um, what has happened. We look just here, what I was saying before, how when we had the 10-year ban from 94 to, to 04, what I didn't mention is that in that, um, um, when the the ban was established under President Clinton and the and Senate and, and House, for 
mass shootings decreased by 43%. When it was lifted, they increased by 239%. So even if people want to make the argument that it's this, that, and the other thing, we have real data from real shootings and real legislation that, that goes to show pocket by pocket, county by county, road by word, road, how many guns were purchased, how many homicides happened, how many suicides happened, how many mass shootings occurred, and all of that. So I think by now, and that would have been, if it's blue, purple, pink, green, regardless, I think that the, the data is something that's able to tell us that this is something that's, and that's consistent across demographics, consistent um, across the only metric that's true, regardless, rural, urban, um, even old, young, or probably the only metric that's true, that's the, that's the most consistent across is male. But anything else regardless of dem demographics has been dispelled. This is Tessa Incomplete. And thank you, Tessa. And, and if I remember correctly, that law was the Brady Bill, and it was enacted be because President Reagan got shot. And that's what it took to get. And Brady was uh, President Reagan's press secretary. So when that happened, suddenly there was an assault weapons ban. I'd like to welcome New Laugh to Clubhouse and to the stage and to say hello and ask him what he'd like to contribute before we wind the room down. Hi, New Laugh. Tell us about yourself. Okay, you're new to Clubhouse. You have to, you have to unmute by um, pressing the little microphone button on the lower right. Yep, you did it. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right, all right, all right. Um, hi, everyone. Yeah, so my name okay. is New Love, yes. Okay, um, welcome, right. welcome to Clubhouse and you are an optimistic note on which to end the room because you're here and that's good. Of course, of course yes. Yeah. So I actually um, wanted to join and get to know more about the discussion and what it really entails. Yeah, so I'm basically um, from Ghana and I'm actually in college. Yeah, so we, what we do is um, we try to get in touch with people on the street and I mean, know more about them and how they ended up on the street. Yeah, so basically, that's what I'm actually into. Yeah, so I'm actually also aspiring to become a renowned journalist across the globe. Yeah, so I just um, see you to be a privilege to join the discussion and get to know more, meet people, and discuss. So that's basically what I came here for. Well, you're welcome in here anytime. And right now, I'm. Um, I'm going to close the room because it's so, it's, it's very, oh, well, it's very emotionally um, distressing, I think, to all of us what happened. So I want to end on a note of love that I always end on. I love you all for coming. I feel blessed to have a room full of people like you that sit here and listen and help me talk about these issues so that I'm not talking to myself all day long. Oh. And I will see you I will see you next week. Take care all Thanks. this was great. Is this a, still an ongoing conversation? So hopefully nobody uh, felt that uh, their answer was wrong. I think we are still looking for the answers. So take care all. Yeah, these diseases of despair are very difficult to uh, yeah. deal with, and I really appreciate the nuance that we dived into. Take yeah. care, everybody.